Welcome back to Arbitrary and Capricious, the podcast of the C. Boyd and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. I'm the Center's Director, Adam White. On October 25, 2019, the Center hosted a conference titled The Administration of Immigration, where experts discussed various aspects of immigration law and policy. As always, the discussion centered around new papers, which are available on our website, and you can also find video of the discussions. We're now releasing the audio recordings in this podcast. In this episode, we have the conference's second panel, titled, Is Immigration Law Special? National Security, Special Courts, and For This Ride Only Law. This discussion centered around a paper co-authored by Aram Gavor and Timothy Belson. The paper was titled, The Forgotten FISA Court, Exploring the Inactivity of the Alien Terrorist Removal Court. Professor Gavor was joined on the panel by Brianne Garad, Chief Counsel of the Constitutional Accountability Center, and Ilya Shapiro, Director of the Robert Levy Center for Constitutional Studies at the Cato Institute. Their discussion was moderated by Jesse Panuccio, former Acting Associate Attorney General of the United States, now a partner at the Boy Schiller Law Firm, and a Public Service Fellow here at the Gray Center. I hope you enjoy this discussion. Well, thank you, Adam. Appreciate that, and thanks for being here, and thanks to our panelists. Uh, so as you see from your program, our next panel is entitled, Is Immigration Law Special? National Security Special Courts and For This Ride Only Law. The anchor, anchor of our panel this morning is Aram Gavor, who has written a paper entitled The Forgotten FISA Court, Exploring the Inactivity of the Alien Terrorist Removal Court, or ATRC. In the paper, Professor Gavor notes that although the ARTC was created in 1996, as a venue to permit the federal government to introduce classified evidence supporting the removal of aliens who are suspected terrorists, it has yet to hear a single case. Professor Gavor's paper theorizes about why that might be the case, explains why the court is nonetheless still useful and necessary, and proposes legislative changes uh, for the underlying statute for the court. Professor Gavor will discuss this in greater detail, and our other panelists, Brianne Gourad and Ilya Shapiro, will offer some responses comments, and further insights. The panelists will hopefully also discuss a larger idea raised by the ARTC, namely, whether immigration law is special, requiring special procedures, special doctrines, and even special courts like the ARTC. The panel title, For This Ride Only, hints at that idea. It is a quote from Justice Thomas's dissent in the recent, recent census case decided by the Supreme Court last June, which dealt with the inclusion of a citizenship, citizenship question on the decennial census. Justice Thomas seemed to suggest in his dissent, and by that quote, that the court, at least in that case, was creating a special doctrine uh, because, of the topic, because the topic at issue was related to immigration. With that, let's turn to Mr. Gavor. Aram Gavor is a professional lecturer of law at the George Washington University Law School, where he is a nationally recognized scholar in the fields of administrative law, federal courts, and national security law. His scholarship is frequently cited by prestigious law journals and courts alike, including a recent citation by the U.S. Supreme Court. As an advocate for the Department of Justice, he has litigated federal court appellate and trial cases involving high-profile challenges to statutes, regulations, and policies. I should note, however, he is here solely in his personal and individual capacity, and all of his opinions and uh, theories today will be in that individual capacity. Uh, Professor Gavor has briefed and argued over a dozen cases before a majority of the United States Court of Appeals, and he's litigated in nearly a third of the 94 United States federal district courts. His cases have been covered by the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Fox News, Politico, 
and the Huffington Post. Professor Gavor, I'll turn it over to you. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Jesse. <clears throat> so uh, first, I want to mention that this particular piece is co-authored with Tim Belson. He's in the audience as well. Uh, if you could just raise your hand, Tim. So uh, the Alien Terrorist Removal Court, you know, for our discussion purposes, the ATRC was established in 1996 after immense political pressure to serve as a forum of last resort to prosecute the most complex, the most difficult national security immigration removal cases while protecting vital classified information from public disclosure. And in fact, the statutory predicate for the ATRC was championed at the request of President Clinton by then-Senators Joe Biden and Bob Dole. So after 23 years, Samad, uh, and a with an active cadre at all times of five Article III district judges uh, who are individually appointed by the Chief Justice of the United States, uh, this ATRC has not heard a single case. So I think it's taken on what some might call a zombie court status. It sort of exists. Uh, there, there have been numerous academic uh, inquiries, some news media inquiries, and analyses into why it doesn't operate. Uh, and, and the general consensus among you know, disparate viewpoints is that there are significant constitutional concerns. Uh, as uh, one of the perhaps the most well-known national security law textbook indicated, in a previous edition doesn't even include ATRC reference anymore in the current edition. Uh, perhaps it doesn't work because of its significant star chamber-like qualities. Uh, in sum, the nature of this court is that it is designed to facilitate the, the utilization of classified evidence, the legality of which is not to be questioned uh, by the defendant alien. And uh, a lot of the information in it would create uh, certainly tensions and questions for due process purposes, as well as to many uh, serve as, as, as a tension for confrontationalism, uh, which is a principal tenet of American justice. So uh, Tim and I, when we decided to look at this, we wanted to look at it anew, take a deeper dive than anyone else has taken, uh, and really look into some of the nuance to answer and to seek you know, the, the, the purpose and, and conclusion of the question, why is this thing not working? There were three presidential administrations, back-to-back, -back, Republican and Democrat, that were seeking to create this as a last resort forum. It was enacted with bipartisan support and then complete silence. So we are the first to really look at the, the nuance of the statutory scheme. And our, our research revealed to us that there's two methodological flaws in the procedures that the statutes that created the ATRC uh, have within it. And those flaws appear viscerally to be insurmountable. Uh, so the statute itself is broken. It can be fixed. It can be fixed relatively easily uh, in terms of drafting, but in terms of a political reality, well, we know uh, immigration reform is, is something that's ever elusive. But nonetheless, uh, to get us to that point, to understand the nuance, I'm going to spend some time talking about the purpose of the court, its operation, but also given that we're 23 years after the enactment of the statutes that created the court, whether there's legitimacy and a need for it. It's, it is a court of last resort, and there are you know, post-dating enactments that have significantly expanded the prosecutorial tools, both criminally uh, and, and civilly, 
to effectuate the immigration laws, especially as it relates to uh, alien terrorists. I mentioned the term alien. That's a statutory term. There's, there's absolutely no purpose or interest uh, for my part to imply any, any sort of politicized meaning to that term. And because the court is called the Alien Terrorist Removal Court, I'm just going to use that term. Uh, so in terms of the legitimacy of this court, uh, of course, at, at core, there's, there's this very powerful undercurrent of national security concern uh, to, pre- to protect the United States. Uh, and when it comes to aliens, aliens uh, have fewer procedural protections than U.S. citizens. That's something that was laid out quite, quite clearly, I think, in the last panel. Uh, and for a long time, the United States has uh, a number of different procedures to, with in compliance with due process, to remove or deport aliens from the United States. So following the enactment of the statutes that created the ATRC, two significant statutory schemes were enacted. The IRERA, the Illegal Immigrant Immigration Reform and Immigrant Responsibility Act, and then something else you probably know more about, the USA Patriot Act, uh, which provide significant addition of tools. So Tim and I, when we were looking at this as a, as a court of last resort, we really needed to localize onto what particular class or subclass of aliens would this court and only this court be able to serve as a forum for uh, to civilly prosecute the removal of. Uh, and, and we've identified a very small group, lawful permanent residents, otherwise known as green card holders or LPRs, for whom the only viable removal charge is based on terrorism activity that can only be proven by reliance on national security information that cannot be declassified, such as evidence obtained or derived from electronic surveillance under the FISA, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, or foreign intelligence information that is not appropriate for declassification or public acknowledgement. Uh, and indeed, the removal of terrorist LPRs was likely the main impetus of the ATRC. And uh, I suppose we're now two for two, a Cato reference. Uh, in terms of uh, LPRs engaging in terroristic activity in the United States, a 2019 study by the Cato Institute identified that uh, foreign-born terrorists were responsible for 86% or about 3,000 of the murders caused by terrorists on U.S. soil from 1975 to 2017. And the most common category of immigration status for that population is actually lawful permanent resident status. So based on the data and what we've looked to in terms of other statutory schemes, there is legitimacy uh, for NATRC as a function of a, of a forum and for a subclass of aliens, just lawful permanent residents who engage in terroristic activities or who are terrorists, uh, for whom uh, FISA use to derive from information is inappropriate or there's foreign intelligence that is just not appropriate for declassification. So I see I'm relatively short on time. Uh, I have many more pages of thoughts, but the gist is this. Uh, this statutory scheme... Take was... more time. I, I uncharacteristically have relatively few thoughts. So. Well, with Ilya's <laughs> I'll believe permission, that one. With Ilya's permission, I think I will. That's, that's all right. With okay with Thank you. <laughs> Sorry about that. You're breaking new ground, so this is interesting, I think. Yeah. Yes. Breaking, it's Halloween time, right? So breaking new time, you know, no ground in the zombie courts. <laughs> uh, so this ATRC... <laughs> 
was never intended to be a high volume court. It was intended to be a low volume court and, and one of, uh, of last resort. Um, Congress established a detailed procedure for the ATRC's removal proceedings. Congress knew, debated, and had significant misgivings related to due process protections and star chamber-like nature of this entity that they created in the mid-90s. So that's something that in the context of, let's say, like a Youngstown analysis is really like a category one inquiry. Congress looked at this, engaged in very careful thinking, and legislated a number of very significant procedures meant to serve, I think, as a counterbalance to uh, the absence of what you would normatively think of as, as a significant portion of justice that's administered by an Article Three court, accessing the information that's going to be used against you, being able to challenge the legitimacy of that information, uh, and such like. So the, the procedures that are put into place are, are, are quite powerful, uh, and I'm going to spend a little bit of time talking about them. First, there is political accountability, and by that I mean at the highest level of government, political accountability that requires a certification by the Attorney General of the United States or the Deputy Attorney General to the ATRC to at least initiate proceedings. And following that certification and an application, there is then a threshold or a gatekeeping function of one of the ATRC judges to determine if the certification and application meets an evidentiary standard, probable cause. Uh, if those things are satisfied, then an ATRC case is de jure taking place. So looking at the political executive branch certification process, the, the attorney general or the DAG needs to establish two things, that there's probable cause to believe that the proposed defendant is an alien terrorist and for whom, number two, traditional removal proceedings that are administered by the Executive Office of Immigration Review, a sub-agency within the Department of Justice, uh, would pose a risk to the national security of the United States. And the gatekeeping function that is associated with this political accountability uh, is, is that these cases are not initiated unless the ATRC judge agrees that the application establishes that probable cause on both points. So these preliminary steps are done ex parte, they are done in camera, they are done under seal. And none of the evidence submitted can be considered by the ATRC in determining whether to issue a removal order unless it is resubmitted in the government's case in chief. So here's where the problem is, because up till that point, it does not seem to be a terribly difficult standard to establish. The problem is that when the government uh, is not able to provide an unclassified summary, which is also required by the statute, such that the defendant has the ability to put on a proper defense, because that's something else that the Congress requires, it's an unclassified summary. If that cannot be, then there are other procedures that have to take place such that a case can proceed under the ATRC without an unclassified summary. Uh, so in this circumstance, uh, in order to use classified evidence during these removals and without the classified summary, uh, the court needs to determine uh, that the removal hearing shall be terminated unless the continued presence of the alien in the United States would likely cause serious and irreparable harm to the national security 
or death or serious bodily injury uh, to any person. That's sort of a conjunctive standard that's really, really high. And then the provision of the summary would likely cause serious and irreparable harm to the national security. So th these are things that are very difficult to establish. First is the government is not likely going to be in a circumstance if it needs to use an ATRC where it's going to be able to reveal unclassified information in a summary that is sufficient to allow the defendant to establish a defense. And because it can't do that, it's sort of a catch-22. The entire purpose of the ATRC is to provide a forum for classified information that otherwise can't be revealed. So then using this backstop, there's a very, very high conjunctive standard that the court needs to see that is likely too high for the government to fill. Also, the second big flaw that we've identified is that the level of classification required um, is, is something between what is traditionally known as secret and top secret level of classification. The, the standard that is described in the statutory scheme is somewhat unique. So when it comes to statutory certainty in terms of the level of classification needed, there's a relatively big difference between secret information and top secret information. So those are like the, the, the two significant points. So let me, one more minute. Well, let me lay out one hypothetical case that sort of lays out what this is. So suppose the government had FISA-obtained information classified at the top level of classification, top secret, utilized only where disclosure of the information would result in exceptionally grave damage to national security and indicates that the alien defendant was raising funds for a new terrorist organization, perhaps, that had stated its intention to attack U.S. citizens abroad and had what appeared to be a viable plan for doing so, but whose immediate capabilities are non-existent or seriously in question. So such information would likely satisfy one of the prongs because of the damage that would likely be caused by revealing the classified information or its source, but would not likely establish the alien's continued presence in the United States would, quote, would likely result in serious or irreparable damage to the United States or an individual. So consequently, because the statutory scheme is sort of broken from the start, probably based on the compromise process, the satisfied due process, uh, there is an entire subclass of aliens for whom removal proceedings cannot easily be secured. That's a problem. And our conclusion is the ATRC, with a couple fixes, may be good enough to do so. And we also conclude that those fixes and the ATRC in general as applied to this population at least facially satisfies constitutional muster, although that would be, I think, an item of significant debate with the courts in a natural challenge and probably this panel. Thank you. And just to tee up, we'll take one more minute. Can you just tell us your proposed fixes to the statute just so in case there's the other panelists want to comment, it's teed up. Yeah, sure. So in terms of the proposed fixes to the statute, it would essentially be two things. First, the easier one being a clear identification of the level of classification needed uh, to render the ATRC necessary. So it would either be secret or top secret. Secret necessarily would be a lowering of the standard or at least a clear identification of an amorphous standard to one of the two levels of classification that are identified in the statute. And then second, instead of a conjunctive requirement for a non-unclassified summary case to proceed, that it be disjunctive, 
which is still relatively high, and there's still a lot of protections put into place. Okay. Thank you very much, Professor Gavor. Uh, next, we are privileged to be joined this morning by uh, Brianne Gourad. Ms. Gourad is Chief Counsel of the Constitutional Accountability Center and previously served as the Center's Appellate Counsel. Prior to that, Ms. Gourad was counsel at O'Melveny and Myers uh, in their Supreme Court and appellate practice. From 2009 through 2011, she was an attorney advisor in the Office of Legal Counsel at the U.S. Department of Justice. She has also served as a law clerk for Justice Stephen Breyer on the U.S. Supreme Court, Judge Robert Katzman on the Second Circuit, and Judge Jed Rakoff on the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of New York. Ms. Gorod's academic writings have appeared in the Yale Law Journal, the Duke Law Journal, the Northwestern University Law Review, the Washington Law Review, and the NYU Journal of Law and Liberty. And her popular writings have appeared in outlets such as the Washington Post, the LA Times, Slate, the New Republic, CNN.com, and Reuters. And she is a regular contributor to numerous legal and popular blogs. Ms. Gorod received her JD from Yale Law School and her MABS from Emory University. I'll turn it over to you. Thank you so much for joining us. Great. Well, thank you so much, Jesse, and thank you to the Gray Center for putting on this fantastic conference and this morning's panel and providing me to participate in uh, our discussion today of this incredibly interesting article on the APRC. And I do want to start by saying how much I enjoyed the article. You know, as it rightly points out, and as Arms talked about this morning, this is a forgotten court. And as someone who works broadly in constitutional law, I'll say it was not a court that I was especially familiar with. And so I, I did just learn a tremendous amount from the article. And I also think whatever you think about the various reforms that the article proposes, um, there's simply no question the article discusses those possible reforms um, in a very thoughtful and thought-provoking way. So I'm, I'm very happy to be here this morning to discuss the article. Um, one of the things I think is really interesting is that it does tee up this fascinating question, um, which we've already heard a little bit about this morning, of why this court, which was presumably established to serve what was viewed as a perceived and important need, has not ever been used in its 25 years in existence. So the article, um, as we've heard a little bit about, hypothesizes that the non-use of the court is due to, quote, procedural hurdles, unquote, um, that are in the original statutory scheme. And, and so Arm talked a little bit about the dual findings that are required for the court to authorize the use of classified evidence um, when an unclassified summary uh, can't be provided. Um, and says so that that you know, is the reason why we haven't seen this court being used in its 25 years in existence. And I think that's potentially right as a descriptive matter. Um, but I do think it'd be interesting to know a little bit more about whether the government is using other means to remove these individuals. I think some people in talking about the court have suggested that its non-use may actually be due to the fact that there are generally other ways to remove individuals who might otherwise come before the ATRC. And so there's simply not been a need to use the court. That's obviously um, an empirical question. I think an empirical question that's probably quite difficult to answer, um, but just one that occurred to me as I was reading the article. But I want to put that aside and assume that the article is right, that these procedural hurdles are the reason why the court isn't being used. And then think a little bit about whether the proposal to get rid of the conjunctive standard, um, think about whether that is right. And I'm not going to pretend today to offer any definitive answers. I don't have them um, on whether that is right or on what the standard should be. But I do want to push back a little bit on the suggestion this standard should be viewed as simply a procedural hurdle. Um, because I think, as you know, Arm has noted, as the article notes, when Congress was considering the court, it was trying to balance a couple of different things. Obviously, balancing um, the important national security interests in protecting classified information, 
Um, but also balancing that with constitutional considerations. And I, I think this high standard was put in place um, to address those constitutional concerns that arise when you are potentially removing an individual from this country um, based on secret evidence. So in thinking about the standard that currently exists and thinking about whether it's too high and should be lowered, I think it's important to keep in mind these constitutional concerns. And to be sure, the article touches on them. Obviously, Arm touched on them this morning. But I think it's worth stepping back for just a moment to focus on them, um, because I really do think they're critical to thinking through the questions that this court poses. Um, as the article rightly notes, you know, due process protections are a central feature um, to the counter-majoritarian protections provided in the Bill of Rights. And the Fifth Amendment provides that no person, emphasis on the word person there, should be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. And that same guarantee, that same protection is, of course, included in the 14th Amendment. And as the plain language of these clauses reflects, the guarantee of due process provides protections not just to citizens, but to any person. And that protection reflects an enduring American constitutional tradition of providing due process protections to all persons residing on American soil, regardless of whether they are citizens or not. Um, the Due Process Clause grew out of the Magna Carta, that great 13th century charter of English liberty. And it's worth noting a distinction between what the Magna Carta provided and what our Due Process Clauses provide. So the Magna Carta provided that no free man shall be taken or any otherwise imprisoned or be deceased of his freehold or liberties or free customs or be outlawed or exiled or destroyed, but by lawful judgment of his peers or by the law of the land. Unlike the Magna Carta, the Due Process Clause applies not just to free men, but universally protecting all persons. Um, Representative Bingham, who's one of the drafters of the 14th Amendment, actually focused in on this distinction. He said this clear recognition of the rights of all was a new gospel to mankind, something unknown to the men of the 13th century. The barons of England, he said, demanded the security of law for, of law for themselves. The patriots of America proclaimed the security and protection of the law for all, no matter whether citizen or strangers. And so the wording of the Due Process Clause of the Fifth Amendment was proof positive that the Due Process Clause as he also said, embraces all men when the Constitution guarantees life and liberty and trial by jury. The Constitution has the same care for the rights of the stranger within your gates as for the rights of the citizen. Now, to be sure, the Supreme Court has recognized that in the exercise of its broad power over naturalization and immigration, the Congress can make rules as to non-citizens um, that it cannot make as applied to citizens. So the point isn't that recognizing this history somehow answers the constitutional question that we have here, but I do think that understanding this history and understanding the important constitutional values at stake um, should be at the beginning of the analysis. And focusing on the due process clause here, I think also brings into sharp relief the critical role that adversarialism plays in our justice system. You know, that justice system, of course, assumes an adversarial presentation of issues and of arguments, and that that presentation will do the best job of ensuring that our system unearths the truth and reaches the right result in any given case. And that's yet another reason why I think we need to be careful uh, before we disturb that system and before we conclude that someone can be removed from the country based on evidence that they aren't able to see and fully respond to. And again, my point here isn't to answer the question, um, but simply to suggest that there are important values that should be kept front of mind as we're thinking about the really interesting questions that this court and this article raises. Because I do think when you consider these questions with due process and um, the normal operation of our court system in mind, 
it becomes clearer why Congress would have imposed this relatively high burden before an individual could be forced to leave the country based on secret evidence. And indeed, when you look at the history of the ATRC, um, it's clear that Congress was certainly thinking about these constitutional issues in setting up this structure. You know, one senator, for example, who was a supporter of the law and, and thought the constitutional concerns were satisfied, um, specifically referenced them. Um, senator Smith said that, you know, given the compelling nature of the natural security interests at stake and the rare cases in which the need for this special procedure would arise and the protections that are afforded by our bill, we have no doubt that our proposal is fully constitutional. And, you know, in the years after the court was put in place, there's been a continuing discussion and a continuing debate about the protections that it provides and whether they're sufficient. Um, in 2001, for example, during debates about whether to remove the summary from the ATRC proceedings, um, Senator Leahy said that, quote, the idea of having a quasi-secret court and making only limited ev evidence available to the defendant, as is true under existing law, is constitutionally questionable enough. And also in 2001, Representative David Bonner sponsored legislation along with roughly 100 co-sponsors that would have provided non-citizens additional protections against the use of secret evidence. Um, there was a House report that accompanied one of the versions of that bill um, that took the position that the use of secret evidence cannot be squared with due process. And that report also emphasized the adversarial process point that I've made, noting that, quote, when the government is free to introduce its evidence behind closed doors, all the requisites of a fair adversarial process have been abandoned no person should be deprived of liberty on the basis of evidence kept secret from that person. And so again, you know, my point isn't to say how the balance should be struck um, or what the right standard should be, but just to note that this high standard um, exists for a reason, um, both because of the due process concerns and constitutional values at play, and also because the consequences of the court are, of course, so severe. Deportation, removal from the country. Um, deportation is, after all, a punishment akin to banishment. It's the kind of punishment that has for centuries been recognized of, as an incredibly, incredibly serious consequence. And so, of course, we have to take very seriously then the procedures that are used before that consequence is imposed. So I see my time is almost up. Um, I, I guess that's that high standard is, I think, one reason why um, we should think very carefully about um, what the government must show before it can remove someone based on secret evidence. And I think you know, one way to think about it is this. Um, the article, of course, proposes getting rid of the conjunctive standard, making it sufficient that the government just shows that the classified evidence can't be revealed or that the person remaining in the country is sufficiently dangerous. But, you know, the question then is, if the government can't show that the provision, if it can't satisfy both of these standards, if it can't show, for example, that the provision of the summary would likely cause serious <laughs> harm to the national security um, or to any person, what is, why shouldn't they be required to provide a summary of that evidence before a person is removed from the country? Or conversely, if the government can't show, um, or the government can show the summary should be provided, but can't establish a meaningful danger from the person's presence in the country, again, why should secret evidence be allowed to support his removal? Again, the answers here aren't obvious. There are obviously difficult questions and important interests um, on both sides, um, but I do think that these are the questions that we should be thinking about and the background against which we should be thinking about them. Um, and I want to raise these questions too, because I think one of the things that is so interesting about the article um, is that it raises these larger questions, not just about the ATRC, um, but how we should think about how our justice system operates um, in unique contexts that may present special, um, unique challenges. Um, I do think, while we can't obviously talk about all of those issues here, thinking about constitutional text and history and values um, is almost always going to be a very good place to start in analyzing those questions. Um, so I think I'll leave it there, and I look forward to continuing the conversation.
Well, thank you so much, Brianne, for those uh, great comments and look forward to uh, some engagement on those uh, after we hear from our next panelist, who we are also privileged to have this morning, Ilya Shapiro, who is the director of the Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies at the Cato Institute, third mention at least this morning. Uh, before joining Cato, he was a special assistant and advisor to the multinational force in Iraq on rule of law issues and practiced at Patton Boggs and Cleary Gottlieb. Mr. Shapiro is the co-author of Religious Liberties for Corporations, Hobby Lobby, the Affordable Care Act, and the Constitution, which came out in 2014. And he is the editor of 11 volumes of the Cato Supreme Court Review from 2008 through this last term, 2018. He has contributed to a variety of academic, popular, and professional publications and regularly provides media commentary. Mr. Shapiro has testified before Congress, federal agencies, and state legislatures and has filed more than 300 amicus briefs in the U.S. Supreme Court. Mr. Shapiro was an inaugural... Unlike Brianne, I don't write them all myself. <laughs> I, I don't either. <laughs> but you take credit for all of them, and that's the important part. <laughs> Mr. Shapiro was an inaugural Washington Fellow at the National Review Institute and a Lincoln Fellow at the Claremont Institute, and he has served as an adjunct professor at the George Washington University School of Law. Before entering private practice, Mr. Mr. Shapiro clerked for Judge Grady Jolly of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. He holds a bachelor's degree from Princeton University, a master's degree from the London School of Economics, and a JD from the University of Chicago Law School. Mr. Shapiro, thanks so much for joining us. Sure, that's uh, a, a great uh, introduction. Thanks, uh, Jesse. Uh, almost all of that was uh, was true, so that was uh, very good. Um, uh, it's an honor uh, to, to be here uh, on this panel and uh, at a, another program of the Boyden Gray Center, and an honor especially that Ambassador Gray is here in the audience. I, I certainly appreciate that. A um, little daunting um, uh, because uh, administrative law was actually my worst grade in law school, so I appreciate very much uh, Adam and Andrew inviting me to these, this programming. I think it's kind of part of my remedial uh, education uh, and um, uh, I mean, it's possible it was just all wrong, the administrative law. That, that could right be track. it. My answer kept being like, no, the government should not be able to do that. And that <laughs> turned out to be the, not the correct answer. Anyway, um, uh, and uh, I'm delighted to be at this conference specifically uh, focusing on immigration because I'm actually a, a double immigrant myself. I was born in Russia and we uh, took a wrong turn at the St. Lawrence Seaway. So I'm a naturalized Canadian and then came to the U.S. Uh, for college and, and have stayed. Uh, like most immigrants, I do a job that most uh, native-born Americans won't, and that's defending the Constitution. <laughs> so uh, uh, I'm going to go from the specific to the general. Uh, I thought this was a, a really interesting paper. I don't think I'd heard of the ATRC, or maybe I heard it when it was first enacted and probably forgot about it, and it's never been in the news since, as Aram has described, because it's never been uh, been used. Um, I wonder whether, you know, the, the proposals that Aram has on his, uh, on his appendix, um, you know, isn't, you know, he described a, a couple of major ones. It's not that much. It's like replacing a word here or there, changing the word, like proceedings to proceeding or summary to adequate summary. I think the most important one is, frankly, changing in section 1534E3DIII, changing and to or. See, this is to show that I closely read your, uh, your article. Um, evidentiary standards are when uh, the Justice Department is allowed not to provide uh, a summary of, of, of evidence against the person they want to uh, remove. Um, you know, I wonder whether the reason that this uh, so-called zombie court hasn't been used isn't because of these technical flaws 
uh, in the governing statute, but simply because the DOJ is used to doing things another way. They have their, you know, set procedures and processes. Uh, they're unsure how this uh, new thing is, is going to come about. Uh, or maybe, you know, given other tools, okay, there's one or two people that we would like to use this for, but given, uh, uh, you know, startup costs or, or transaction costs or whatever in, in, in trying to use this tool for the first time is just judged to be too much every single time. And so there is no first case uh, that develops. Um, you know, I'd like to hear about, you know, from DOJ people, you know, Aram is uh, partly affiliated with DOJ now. So, you know, you know what, is what is it exactly? Because I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just skeptical. I don't know. Like I said, I just, you know, learned about the court from this paper. But uh, is it simply these technical fixes that uh, would really uh, be such a, a sea change? Uh, slightly more broadly, uh, I wonder whether single subject courts, you know, uh, getting away from just the national security space, uh, whether they're really necessary or how effective they are. You know, we have a number of single subject courts, uh, good for one ride only. Um, the Court for International Trade, for example, uh, or the tax courts, uh, appeals from those go straight to the federal circuit. On the other hand, we have bankruptcy courts, which are even bigger and have a huge uh, a docket, but they are under the district courts. So, um, you know, is it that you, it's better to have a single subject uh, court that's actually part of the normal district court uh, uh, structure? I, from from talking, you know, my brief experience talking to trade and tax practitioners, they seem to not have very many qualms about those single subject courts, but they do have qualms about what the federal circuit does once it gets those cases on appeal. And certainly if you talk to the patent bar, they're quite dissatisfied with uh, the federal circuit uh, and the Supreme Court. Has, I mean, I, th I think that the, there's not that many cases that come from the federal circuit, that many patent cases, although increasing in, in the last decade or so. But I think that court, uh, or on patents at least, doesn't have a very good record at the Supreme Court. So query whether that kind of specialization actually helps anything. Uh, Chief Judge Diane Wood of the Seventh Circuit has a really good speech from now, I think, four or five years ago. I commend it to all of you about why uh, the Federal Circuit's monopoly over patent appeals uh, is a failed experiment. Um, I think it's uh, it's really pithy for, you know, it's not like we, you know, she's in, Diane Wood is an antitrust specialist. It's not like we have a specialized antitrust appellate court, and that seems to work okay with the kind of uh, generalized uh, courts of appeal. But maybe the lesson here really is that trial uh, subject-specific courts good, appellate subject-specific courts bad. I, I don't know. So maybe if you reform the ATRC sufficiently uh, or immigration courts, uh, I'm going to get to my thoughts on whether we need to create more specific immigration courts in a moment, uh, but just have them have the appeals from those courts go to our regular circuits. Maybe that would work. I don't know. It's worth, uh, it's worth considering. And now what about the immigration context? And again, forget about deporting potential terrorists in the ATRC. Um, you know, we have uh, a lot of complaints about um, processing of, of uh, all sorts of immigration petitions, delays, uh, whether delays in getting, uh, you know, positive results in being able to stay or uh, the government trying to uh, remove people or, or what have you. You know, I wonder whether that's really an issue of not having courts that are so specialized and simply a matter of not having enough courts, period, enough judges uh, to handle all of these uh, immigration uh, petitions and appeals, uh, as well as the nature of the law in general. I mean, our current immigration uh, uh, crisis um, 
is relating to the uh, asylum law being inadequate to deal with people coming in and not simply coming in illegally and trying to avoid uh, arrest, uh, but willingly wanting, seeking out uh, 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 border agents and then declaring asylum, uh, and often in families. This, this is kind of a new phenomenon uh, in the last uh, uh, decade or so. So I think there's flaws in the underlying law that need to be addressed, substantive law, uh, before we even get to the structure of the courts or their number or what have you. So, um, you know, I'm not convinced that we need a, a wholesale carve out a new immigration court regime. I think the, the appellate courts uh, generally, you know, I clerked on the Fifth Circuit. We had a lot of immigration appeals, obviously. I think uh, they did a fine job, but it's really just a backlog of at the front end, um, being able to process these uh, these things. Again, that's more broad than the ATRC, but uh, Adam and Andrew suggested that we should uh, take this panel in a, in a broader direction. I think that's very interesting because, um, you know, patent aside, I think that that's pretty much nobody's happy with uh, what the Federal Circuit is done, doing there. But, uh, you know, maybe there is room for, for single-subject courts in, in other areas. Um, I'm just not sure that immigration is necessarily one of them. Okay, thank you. Well, we have about a uh, little over 30 minutes left for this panel, so I'm going to pose a few questions to the panelists uh, and then open it up for audience questions. Let me just start with this. Uh, in response to each other's comments, is there anything that anyone wanted to add? Uh, Aaron, we can start with you if you'd like. So I, I'm just deeply appreciative uh, of, of Brianne and Ilya reading my, my and Tim's piece and, and their viewpoints. Uh, I, think, I think that's probably right in terms of you know, the, the proximate reason or one of the proximate reasons why the DOJ has not brought such a case under the ATRC is likely an empirical one for, for which I don't have the factual inputs. Uh, and it might be from different administrations, just unknown. Uh, so our level of inquiry was sort of looking at what's available and trying to put together a hypothesis. This is tough to prove a nullity. <laughs> has DOJ come and asked for fixes at any point? You know, Not that I'm aware of. Arm, let me let me ask you a question. Uh, you know, as I was reading your paper and, and listening to the comments this morning, uh, it, it, you know, the most notable thing about the ATRC is that it hasn't been used, uh, and you propose some uh, potential reasons for that. But as I was thinking about it, I thought about the fact that the DOJ also has available to it the state secrets pr privilege, which it does invoke, uh, not often, but you know, a, a few times a year, uh, and that's in civil cases where the discovery asked for by a plaintiff. Uh, is of classified information, and DOJ can make a showing that it would be harmful to national security, and there's a certain showing that needs to be made. Uh, and the DOJ does invoke that. So I, I guess I have two questions for the panel about that. One, why do you think uh, that DOJ uses that very similar tool in that civil context but hasn't used this tool in the uh, removal context? And then two, maybe a question uh, for Bri Brianne and Ilya is, uh, if you think there are constitutional due process concerns with the ATRC, do you think they're mirrored in the state secrets, or do you think the law that has upheld state secrets privilege would be ported over uh, if there ever were a challenge to the ATRC? So I'll open that to the panelists. Great. So just uh, just as a friendly reminder, I'm here solely in my, my personal capacity as, as a GW law professor. Uh, so in terms of state secrets, my observation is is that it's typically used as a litigation ending vehicle. Uh, it's it's more of a more of a shield, and the ATRC appears to be a you know it's designed to be a forum that's essentially a sword. It's it's an affirmative use 
prosecutorial capability in the civil context uh, for terrorist aliens. So I think there's a there's a distinction between the two. And the big difference also with state secrets is that something is about to get out or already has gotten out. So the government is in a highly defensive posture as to whether it needs to jump in with its shield. For the ATRC, the, there, there is discretion, significant discretion and, and high, high political discretion as to whether a case is initiated. And then there's Article 3 validation of the justification behind the discretion. So for that, I think there's, there's a lot more hurdle to jump to initiate an ATRC proceeding than sometimes even for the relatively high hurdles of the invocation of the state secrets privilege. Um, you know, one thing that I, I found interesting as I was reading up on the ATRC and some of the history of discussions about it, you know, I mentioned the 2001 proposal by um, Representative Bonnier and other members of Congress to heighten the standards. So, you know, in that legislation, they actually looked at the Classified Information Procedures Act, which is used in criminal cases and requires the government to provide an unclassified summary um, of classified information. Um, so it sounds similar to the ATRC, but with a somewhat different standard. So that there they need to provide a summary that would give a person, quote, substantially the same ability to make his, de- make his defense as would a disclosure of the classified information. And so they would have actually brought that over um, and replaced the ATRC standard, which just requires that the unclassified summary enable the person to prepare a defense. Um, so you can see the difference between their prepare a defense versus prepare um, a substantially the same ability to prepare a defense. Um, so, you know, I think it really is interesting that you have um, these different standards that are applied in what feels like pretty similar, but not exactly the same context. Um, and, you know, I think in assessing the constitutionality of any of these things, you know, it's difficult in the abstract, right? Because you need to know, you know, what the government's need is, what the justification is. You also need to know potentially, you know, is, are we talking about LPR? Are we talking about different immigration classification? Because what the court has said over time is that, you know, the level of due process protection that one enjoys um, depends to some degree on, on the closeness of your connections to the country. And so I think there's a lot of, of factual details that would affect the constitutional analysis, which is why these are difficult questions to answer. Well, I, I don't think, um, uh, again, just all I know about the ATRC's procedures are what I've read in this paper. So I'm not sure the, the extent to which, I mean, nobody knows in practice uh, what due process concerns might be raised. Uh, I think there's a distinction between law enforcement and national security. So if you're trying to prosecute somebody and put them in jail, that's a different standard for due process than uh, civil uh, uh, issues or national security issues. Now, immigration is somewhat of a hybrid. And of course, the uh, penalty or the result of potential removal is serious, but it's still not putting someone in jail. Um, so, you know, again, I'd, I'd have to look at a bit more how, how that dynamic works. But, you know, in theory, there's no problem with national security processes or, or State Secrets Act or, or these sorts of things. You have a FISA court after all. So, you know, query why the FISA court is used from time to time while, while ATRC uh, isn't. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, it, it, the devil is in the details, and since it's never been used, we don't really know how this would look on the ground and, and what exact, you know, whether uh, the, the concerns that, that Brienne raised um, would in practice materialize or how they'd be handled. Okay, are there audience questions? Why don't we go to those? And this one right here in the middle. Is there a microphone <laughs> coming around, I think? Stuart Reuter, Gadfly. <laughs> I've got a couple of comments, and I guess I'm cynical. How do you know the court, with if secrecy has not been used, A, and if we know somebody's a terrorist, 
do you really want to put him over the border to continue his terrorism actions? Or would you rather put him in that pile of concrete in Colorado where we keep such people? Comment to the general panel on the last question. I, I can step in for that one. So the, the procedures of the ATRC require that when a case is initiated, that that's publicly disclosed. There's this, it's a public court uh, where, where certain, certain contents are in camera for a period of time. Uh, but then at some point that would be publicly revealed. So, so I think we can state with certainty that there is no active case before the ATRC based on the procedures. In addition, so your other question really relates to various, various theories of, 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 of mitigating national security risk. So the justification, at least, that the Congress enunciated you know, with its plenary authority for the ATRC is removal from the country is a tool. Uh, and that's a discretionary one, whether the, the government wants to go that route. But I think also the government has proven itself quite unafraid to utilize criminal uh, tools of, of prosecutorial authority to, to hold terrorists accountable. So I think it comes down to a traditional nuanced prosecutorial discretion question in terms of which tools to be utilized and in the absence of others, whether an ATRC is necessary. Ilya or Brian, do you want to respond to that or? I'll move on to another question. Okay. Um, I think we have a question right here. Hi, uh, David Rubenstein again. Um, great. Really interesting. Thanks. Um, I'm wondering if I could maybe turn the attention to a different constitutional dimension because everything's focused on due process as I think that's the most important lowest hanging fruit. But what about separation of powers? And so my first question is sort of historically, was separation of powers a consideration in how the court was designed? Uh, my understanding, just from asking Tim, who's sitting next to me, is I don't <laughs> think you mentioned who the judges are, but they're Article Three judges, correct? Yes, they are. And so was, you know, was separation of powers a consideration in the design of this court uh, when, when it was created? Uh, and then I guess a thought experiment hypothetical, what if this was not an Article Three court, if, assuming it is an Article Three court, um, what could this be an Article I court? Could you have an executive official uh, exercising the role of judge in this case? And if not, why not? Um, and I suppose just more generally in the context of immigration, is it special? When you're dealing with national security and immigration law, it's the zenith of exceptionality. At least that's one of the takeaways from Trump v. Hawaii. And so even if in other contexts you could not have an, you know, an executive official acting as judge, is there something perhaps in this context that it would be allowable? Great question. We'll want to dig into that? Sure. So the, the, the first one is, sort of, is the factual one. Is, was separation of powers considered by the Congress? I think so. But it, it's, it's, it's a factual input that I'd have to refresh my recollection on. There's reams of cause there's three, three administrations of attempts <laughs> to push it through. Uh, but certainly the result, given that it's an Article Three tribunal, uh, one where the chief justice identifies the five district judges on that tribunal, is, is a significant one. And I think that that goes to traditional notions of the satisfaction of separated powers. Could it be an Article One court? Uh, certainly the Congress has the authority to, to try to establish that. But in terms of constitutional legitimacy, I think the gold standard is just Article 3, right? It's, there's, there's enough concerns with this court such that, that people have described as a star chamber 
uh, e- even in the you know some of the debates that that an Article Three court and some of the other protections that are put into place in terms of an automatic appeal on an expedited basis to the D.C. Circuit, uh, cert to the Supreme Court, etc., at least establishes uh, an undergirding on that score. Um, so uh, it's probably an Article Three court, or at least the judges who are assigned to it are all Article Three judges, and so they're probably thinking of themselves that way. Uh, I think it's uh, one area where it's a distinction probably without a difference. And, and immigration uh, enforcement is uh, properly uh, uh, an executive power. Um, Ilya Soman, um, who's not me, just for hashtag Ilya confusion, Ilya. Uh, who's a, a professor here at, at uh, Scalia Law, um, thinks that uh, the federal government actually has no power over immigration whatsoever under the Constitution because it's not explicit. The word immigration does not uh, appear. I think that Congress does have the power to legislate and the executive does have the power to enforce, whether under a theory of inherent authority or uh, the power to raise armies is a greater power that includes the lesser power of um, uh, policing the border or other... Anyway, I don't want to go through that theory. Ilya Soman and I are actually debating executive power over immigration at uh, GW Law School next Wednesday at, at 4 o'clock, for anyone who wants to come to that, uh, the latest in our fam- uh, fabled Ilya versus Ilya debates. Um, we don't disagree on all that much, but it's, anyway. Um, so I think that uh, the, uh, the, it's not a problem to have uh, you know, processes set up for uh, dealing with immigrants, whether in, the, in a terrorism context uh, or otherwise, um, uh, as long as there's ultimately an appeal to, to Article Three courts. Um, and that's one thing, uh, I don't know if you mentioned this, but uh, are there appeals from the ATRC? Does it go straight to the Supreme Court on a habeas thing, or how, how, that, how would that work? So, so for LPRs, there's an automatic appeal to, to the D.C. Circuit right. on an expedited basis and immediately recall that I think there's some level of favoritism towards the acceptance of certain sort of expedited basis beyond that. So I think, I think if an ATRC were utilized, it would immediately be nationwide attention and probably be one of the more significant yeah. Supreme Court yeah. cases of the term. And I'll just add, I mean, I think, you know, this is a recurring issue that we see in immigration is the extent to which, you know, there is or is not um, judicial review in uh, Article Three courts. I think the court is even the Supreme Court has granted a case this term that raises a question in that vein. And I think, you know, just picking up on what Ilya noted earlier, you know, he said immigration is a bit of a hybrid between the civil and the criminal. And I think that's totally right. Um, but it's worth, you know, emphasizing again that the consequences of immigration proceedings uh, can be incredibly significant um, to the individuals involved. I mean, being, you know, particularly for someone who has, you know, lived in this country for decades, being removed to a country that they may not even know, they may not speak the language, they may have left because uh, they feared persecution there. Um, it is a serious consequence, as the Supreme Court has recognized as well. And so, you know, that, again, is, I think, something to keep in mind as we're thinking about all of these questions about uh, how these courts are set up and what level of review there is um, or is not in Article Three courts. Great. Um, we'll uh, tee up the next question. Let me ask a question while the mic is being passed. Brianna, I, I guess it's my job as moderator to push a little bit. So I want to I want to ask you, and you can be descriptive on this rather than uh, prescriptive. So uh, do you think... Uh, let's assume that the ATRC were used yeah. uh, and, you know, pick your hypothetical, but uh, there is a lawful permanent resident. The government has highly classified information at the top secret level that this person is uh, involved in uh, terrorist activity. 
for whatever reason, the government chooses that removal is the best option at this time. Uh, and they go ahead and they use this court and they effectuate that. And it does go to the Supreme Court. Uh, how serious do you think the due process argument would be? Or I guess what I'm asking is, do you think the court would uphold that use of the APRC? Or do you think that a due process objection might, in fact, uh, in some particular, get the statute struck down? I mean, you know, it's obviously um, difficult to say and, and making predictions about what the Supreme Court does in any uh, area is sure. a bit of a de- dangerous enterprise. You know, and, and I think this is something the article talks about that I don't think we've gotten into here, which is that for LPRs in particular, um, there's a little bit more protection. Um, Arm will definitely correct, should correct me if I get the details wrong, but they are provided with um, an attorney who can see the classified material, even though the individual, um, him or herself, cannot. And so obviously, you know, I think that would factor um, significantly in the court's analysis. But, you know, an LPR, you know, is entitled to real due process protections and, you know, I think needs to be able to play um, an active role in their defense. I, I think I'm, you know, it's difficult to say what the court would do, but I think, you know, there would be really serious um, constitutional concerns there um, that I think would make for, you know, a fascinating case. Okay, great. Sir? I had a client, um, we went to state court uh, on trial. He was a uh, permanent resident. The charges were 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 quite serious. We did uh, prevail so that uh, he didn't, get convictions in that matter. Um, I found out that the government was still interested in removing him, so I had expected that there'd be federal taken to the Eastern District. Um, Instead, they removed it to the secret court, which I found a little puzzling. And they ultimately dealt with him in, in, in that forum. What is, is that secret court, is that used as part of an immigration strategy? Not to my knowledge. And I'm, again, I'm talking in my personal capacity. Right, right, right. I well, know. I was not familiar, you know, with, with the secret court. They demanded all my records and I I provided that to the person that would be defending him. But I I thought to myself, there's got to be something off, because the normal process, if you wish to continue, is to find a federal statute that you can cite this person for, and that way uh, uh, jeopardy doesn't attach. You know, you can you can continue to prosecute, but to take it to the secret court, that just... It, it just didn't smell right. So I, <laughs> I've always wondered about that procedure. Out, yeah, out, and they did it at the, in the Star Chamber. So I, 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 I was never able to, to uh, reconcile that with uh, with my normal uh, practice. And I've been forty something years, and uh, they they took him off to the secret court. So. This was out in Loudoun County. Okay. Thank you. Any, any comments on that? Uh, let me ask a, a sort of a follow-up on that. Um, Arma, I'm wondering if you could, uh, you know, so that you've mentioned, and, and we've heard it mentioned here in audience comments, you know, the star chamber, potential nature of the APRC or, or, or other courts that have similar procedures. But you and your co-author have uh, a chart in your article that kind of points out uh, the protections that are available to uh, litigants who might appear in the ATRC versus 
uh, in other uh, immigration courts. And uh, you don't have to go through all of it, but I'm wondering if you could just speak to whether you think it is in fact star chamber-like or some of the comparisons that you would have in one forum versus the other, uh, you know, and how that would work. So there, there are some similarities and obviously significant differences between an ATRC prosecution and removal proceedings that are adjudicated before the Executive Office of Immigration Review, otherwise known as immigration courts, that are a, a sub-agency within the Justice Department where immigration customs enforcement attorneys serve as prosecutor, uh, and then the, the alien defendant is, is the defendant, and then the adjudicating entity is that Article II uh, administrative, not an administrative law judge, just immigration judge. So the, there are significant protections. The question is significant enough uh, that the Congress put into place for ATRC defendants, and at least the chart that, that we created is for the protections put in place for lawful permanent resident defendants, the class of alien for which this court has continuing legitimacy in our view. But also, as Brianna was identifying, uh, due process protections tend to be a sliding scale uh, in terms of immigration where citizens have the highest level of due process protections and then aliens who are abroad have never been in the United States sort of have the absence of that. Um, so lawful permanent residents are the penultimate level. So the first big one, and you would, I guess, have to think, is this actually a protection or not? I think it is a protection is Article II political accountability to initiate and prosecute removal proceedings. Um, that would likely only happen following a significant internal process within the Justice Department so that the Deputy Attorney General or the Attorney General of the United States would certify that. Uh, so that carries with it immediate political accountability such that those individuals are principal officers of the United States. You certainly do not have that for the initiation of removal proceedings that are before an immigration court. Um, there's also an Article Three probable cause threshold uh, to determine that that needs to be satisfied prior to the initiation of those proceedings. You do not have that for immigration court. Um, there is classified evidence, though, that's available to be utilized for FISA use uh, and derived from authority. Certainly the EOR defendant, who is an LPR, uh, has the advantage for that. And it goes so on and so forth. But there are a number of protections. Brianna's identifying uh, the right to cleared counsel, paid counsel at government expense who has clearance, who is able to represent the client in court. That's, that's essentially something of, um, of, of significant concern, I think, addressed in the last panel as well with the Andra statements and uh, Irina statements. Okay. Other questions from the audience? Right here in front, please. Richard Belzer again. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, in the course of this conversation, um, I think I've heard or implied three non-procedural reasons for the court not to be exercised. First is that the removal remedy may not be desirable from the government's perspective. So going through the trouble, even if you were successful, wouldn't achieve the government's goal. Um, second would be fear of losing a case may deter the Justice Department from taking a case forward, and nobody wants to be the one who takes the case forward first time and loses. Uh, and the third would be it may have an option value of having it there, 
uh, which is that the threat of using it could be a deterrent, it could be useful in dealing with uh, prospective uh, targets um, to divert them back into, into a, a criminal court or some other procedure to avoid going through this particular process. So it may have that, that uh, uh, value in being a threat, but not actually being exercised. Um, anyone want to take that? Willie, you want to start this time, or Arm, if that's more in your court? Feel free. Uh, I'll just say those are all possible good reasons. <laughs> I think raises a good point, too. Obviously, we we're talking about how it's forgotten. It's forgotten from kind of the public sense because mm -hmm. it's not being used and not being talked about. But I guess that doesn't tell us whether it's been forgotten within the Justice Department and in their conversations with individuals. And I don't obviously don't know the answer to that. Sure. Yeah, that's just an empirical question. Can I turn this around and ask a question of the audience? <laughs> sure. Um, See how that goes. It's always fun being on a panel with Ilya. <laughs> um, does anyone in the audience think that there should be a, a separate uh, a court, uh, new court structure for immigration, uh, or want to comment on what you think about the existing single subject courts? Um, I'm curious whether what I was talking about made any sense or triggered some ideas in people's minds. Um, Adam White, Gray Center. That was actually the question I was about to ask myself, if I could turn it back to the panel. <laughs> but <laughs> Ilya, you raised these, and I'm good. curious, just taking a step back from the immigration context, looking at this in practice and, and knowing that there are other single subject courts and there's occasionally calls for new expert courts on, on other issues, what should the takeaway from, from, this, from, from this focus be for those other courts? I'm curious for, for, for anybody, um, their thoughts on so that. You just renvoied my question, basically. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I, I, I put it very, very eloquently and well. All right, why don't you dig in and then we'll go down the line. Well, yeah. oh, go ahead. Sorry. So, so following the, the faculty workshop, and, and we did not coin the term zombie courts. Uh, uh, Mike did. Uh, yeah, you did, and, and I thank you for that. Uh, but it, it did cause for, for Tim and I to ask that question, what about other zombie courts? So that's something we're actually looking at, at least in terms of the zombie court nature, what makes a court not work. Uh, it's a subpart of Ilya's broader question, so I think it's of significant interest. Um, well, I'd say I, I thought Ilya's suggestion earlier that you know maybe there's a difference between trial and appellate courts is an interesting one. I don't, I, you know, I think there's a, this is a fascinating question. Obviously, folks have written on this, and I don't have answers. But you know, you could certainly imagine that in the trial context where you're engaging in fact finding, uh, you know, a, a subject matter expertise maybe could be useful um, in a way that is less helpful at the appellate level where you want to have generalist judges who bring expertise in lots of different areas. Um, to bat. I mean, obviously, you know, Ilya talked about the Federal Circuit and some of the um, critiques of that court. Um, but I think, you know, as a general matter, obviously, appellate, obviously, we want kind of generalists in our appellate courts. And so this possible dichotomy between the trial level and the appellate one, I think, is an interesting, it's definitely an interesting one. Yes, ma'am, in the back. Um, Elaine Middleman, attorney in private practice, not a law professor. Um, I will ask a question to Ilya, the expert on Everything that the other Ilya is not an expert on, I guess. <laughs> anyway, um, in terms of the federal circuits, just broadening on it, what Adam said, is your criticism because they are more based on single topics? And I would add, in addition to patent, the merit system, system, system is, I think, you know, they've had some very bad decisions, I think, out of the federal circuit on that area, too. Um, I know even less about the merit board than I do about patents. Uh, but I, I think what's going on is sort of, uh, you know, whether groupthink or tunnel vision or just simply what in other contexts is, is, is uh, characterized as lack of percolation. 
You know, if you don't have other course to learn from and to read about how they're approaching these issues, you know, sometimes you're just not coming up with, um, uh, you know, what the solution should be. Um, and then, you know, the Supreme Court also doesn't have that percolation to work from. There's, by definition, not a circuit split. Uh, so, um, yeah. Does that mean you recommend something different then? Well, it, it means I, I think we should have, uh, uh, I, I don't, echoing Brianne's point, that echoed my point, I, I think the, uh, we shouldn't have single subject appellate courts. Okay, sir. Hi, uh, thank you for the talk. Um, I'm Vincent Lee. Uh, I'm a law clerk for the Senate Judiciary Committee. Uh, I was wondering for this idea that the district court may be useful for single subjects, but not the appellate court, if you agree with that proposition, don't you undermine the logic of Chevron? Because Chevron is extending ex factual expertise to legal expertise because the agencies administer the, 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 the law. The idea is that uh, they're also experts in, the, in administering the, that area's law. So if you agree with that logic, doesn't that undermine Chevron? Though I know there's many fans of Chevron in this room. Well, um, my answer, I guess, would be I hope so. I don't know. Uh, I mean, See, this I, I is think... why you didn't do well in administrative law. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the thing is, I think agencies should, you know, if and when the court reconsiders Chevron again, I think they should uh, at least make the same distinction that Justice Kagan made with regard to our deference in the Kaiser case, in that agencies should only get whatever modicum of deference when they're acting as experts, meaning economists or uh, biologists or, you know, rocket scientists or whatever, rather than as lawyers, because indeed, uh, judges can be just as good at uh, reading a statute or a regulation as agency lawyers. Yes. Um, when you talk about the Court of International Trade or whatever it's called, I've had numerous cases I've either worked on or read from like the 11th Circuit, and often one of the judges will be from that court. And I, when I see that, I always say, well, do they have nothing else to do in their own court? Or, you know, I just wonder how that translates when they go from that specific court into, you know, sitting on an 11th Circuit, whatever, uh, general circuit. Well, it's probably a question of workload of the appellate courts more so than the lack of workload at places like the CIT. Um, let me uh, see, are there any other audience questions? Where am I? Oh, yes, right here. I'm sorry. Hi, uh, Mike Hagan from UNLV. I wanted to take up Ilya's question about the, um, where the immigration, regular immigration courts should be. They're anything but zombies. They have a million uh, case backlog, roughly. And um, uh, and they don't. I don't think they really work well for anyone's concern right now. So something needs to be done about them. Um, I do think that the question of whether they should remain in Article 2 or Article 3, which I would be inclined to favor, is really important. I think on our panel this afternoon, we'll allude to it. I think it, it to stay in Article 2, there should be at least a reason, some advantage. I don't think there's a great argument for expertise because you could create an equal court like the tax or bankruptcy court in Article 3. It would have to be something that there's an advantage in political accountability of having them answer to the attorney general as they are now, but that's become a very contentious uh, question. And I think it, what is fascinating about this particular zombie court is that Congress, it, its purpose is to order someone removed. So the end product is the same as what goes on in the immigration court and the EOIR because those are really removal courts. Their main question is 
will we order that a person removed or not? And it's interesting in creating this that Congress decided to create what I guess we've decided is basically an Article Three court or composed of Article Three judges, given that that is not actually the way other the regular removal process works. Um, so that that, but I think that's a it's a fascinating question about whether there is a a special rule because this question of which branch of government it should even be in seems to be becoming ever more important in addition to the mechanics of the adjudication. So if we can slice that a little more finely, is the problem then setting aside the question of numbers, you know, let's hire more immigration judges or what have you, uh, is the problem then with the Board of Immigration Appeals and make that, you know, make the immigration judges appealable to, you know, under a district court, if not a, a circuit court, wherever those are coming from? What, what, what do you think? Ooh, I, I don't know if I have a formed opinion on this. I think that the the circuit courts, I suspect, would probably appreciate another filter to to fix problems before things get to them. I think I do tend to agree with you about generalist courts are better and there isn't. I don't think if you look at the quality of BIA decision making that there's a great argument for the, a specialist court here. But the workload is really, really high. Uh, there's jurisdictional issues, too, I should note, um, that cause the immigration courts a lot of problems and have uh, puzzled circuit courts, which is that the immigration courts don't even have jurisdiction over all immigration questions. And so you can have someone with a, a pending visa application that's likely to be granted and then still be ordered removed in another branch of government. And that causes many problems as well. So there's a whole bunch of things to look at, even if it were to remain in Article 2. Any responses to that? Okay, well, we are one minute from out of time. So I like to come in, you know, on time and under budget. So let me thank our uh, three panelists uh, and the audience. Uh, great participation. Uh, thanks to the Gray Center for putting this panel and this uh, conference on. So thank you all very much. <laughs>